0: Welcome to Parent-Driven Development. I'm Allison, and today we're here with Felina Hermans. Felina is the creator of the Hedi Programming Language and was one of the founders of the Joy of Coding Conference. Since 2016, she's been a host at SE Radio, one of the most popular software engineering podcasts on the web. Felina is the author of The Programmer's Brain, a book that helps programmers understand how their brains work and how to use it more effectively. In 2021, Felina was awarded the Dutch Prize for ICT Research. Welcome. Thank you. So a lot of the, the work that you've done has been about programming and programming education. I'm curious, just to kick us off, like, how did you become interested in programming education?
1: yeah so that's a great question the interesting thing is when i graduated my phd i started to teach at a university and i think i wasn't doing such a great job than teaching the undergrads actually because the weird thing is if you want to teach in the school that you have to go to like teachers college right you are properly trained to teach but if you teach in a university it's you get your phd in astrophysics or software engineering and then they give you a little bit of of course of training but really not, not for five not for five years so I don't think I was doing a great job at teaching at the university, but I didn't really know this. I only realized this when I started to teach in a community center in my neighborhood, kids, they had a programming club for kids and their teacher had quit and they were looking for a new programming teacher. And then I thought, well, I know programming. How hard can this be? You know, they're eight, nine, 10 year olds. <laughs> they're not going to ask any difficult questions, but then they did. So it wasn't hard. Programming questions, but I I realized quickly that I was just failing them because they didn't learn anything. Every week they would ask me the same questions, like, hey teacher, how do I add another level to my Flappy Bird game? So I was like, oh kid, here's what you do, you know, showing them a bit or giving them vague hints. Because in, in programming education, we really have this culture that you have to figure it out for yourself, right? You have to look it up on the internet. Oh, you can just Google this. That's very much part of the way we teach. So this is how I told as well. It's just here's a few hints. I don't want to, I don't want to spoil your fun of finding it out, of having this aha moment of like, oh yes, it's working. So I gave them some some vague suggestions, and then ultimately they got it to work. But then the next week they would ask the same question, and I'd be like, but you know, I wouldn't say this, of course. I was trying to be nice and encouraging, but I would think to myself like, how is it possible that you don't know this? Like I told you this a week ago, I hadn't really realized that. The knowledge exiting my mouth and entering the kid's ear isn't the same as it sticks into their brain. And at that point, I was researching software engineering. I wasn't supposed to research programming for kids, but I, I got so interested in it. And then I collaborated with um, like a research friend that I had uh, met before we collaborated on one paper. And then from there, slowly, my main topic became programming education. So it was really the fault of the kids at the, at the community center that just made me realize that teaching is not... I say something teaching is you remember something and and I I wasn't really very capable of doing that early on but luckily that's like a decade ago so I'm better now.
0: What were some of the methods or strategies that you started to put in place so that you know that connection happened right things like clicked in in their brains and they actually started to remember things.
1: Yeah, so one of the biggest thing, and this is also what I talk about in my book, because this isn't just relevant for kids, this is also still relevant for professionals, is that you can have something called too much cognitive load if, if your brain is too full. And I guess all programmers recognize this feeling like you're programming, you're in the zone. And then someone comes in, like your spouse or a colleague, they're like, oh, do you want a coffee? And then it's just like, poof, like your brain is, is it's that final straw, right? That, that breaks the camel's back. So you can have too much cognitive load. And not only is it, is it annoying, it's also not good for your memory. So if you're very, very engaged in a task, it is way less likely that you remember it well than if you're a little bit less engaged in a task. So if you're fully concentrated, your brain is so focused on what you're doing that the remembering part of your brain is temporarily disabled, so to speak. So that was, I think, the, the, the biggest mistake I was making with the kids early on with my vague instructions. They had to find information eh, from different websites or try stuff out. And they were very engaged. So they were, they were doing something, but they couldn't really remember well. So definitely what I started to do is lower the cognitive load. So instead of saying, make this program and I gave them half the program, and they only had to complete it, then they still had the same results. So they're still like, oh, cool, I have a flappy bird game. But then they had a little bit of cognitive space left to actually remember what they did. And then it is more likely that next week they will remember. After a while, of course, they can start building bigger programs. Interesting.
0: My kids are on the younger side, I have a almost three year old now and a five year old. And I think one of the most interesting things about he's in virtual kindergarten. one of the most interesting things about sort of virtual kindergarten and popping in and he's actually learning uh, a little bit of code which i found out randomly he was like oh it's today coding i was like what you did coding but one of the really interesting things about sort of popping being able to i guess pop into classes that i've been able to see sort of more firsthand like I always knew people have different learning styles. I've talked a little bit about, you know, different learning styles and sort of maximizing your day as, as a grown up, as, as an adult and learning things, but you know, I mean, kids have very different learning styles and sort of looking at how that works virtually has been interesting. But I'm I'm curious, as you were doing this programming education, as you were sort of like refining the way that you taught kids, if there were differences in terms of learning styles, or if there were if there were aspects of that, that you sort of needed to, to take into consideration?
1: Yeah, so that's interesting. So, so some newer research actually says that There might not be so big difference in learning styles between kids. So what what very much differences is learning preferences. So some kids might definitely prefer to do something in a certain way. But then the sad thing is that kids, and this is probably also true for adults, they're, they're not really good in picking the right things to do. So kids that already read at a certain level, they might tend towards wanting to read because they can do that. And that, make, that makes them then better readers. So they read more and more and they become better readers. Whereas kids that aren't so strong readers, they might prefer a more visual learning style because it doesn't expose them to the hard task of reading. So if you have kids pick their own styles, or if you cater too much as a teacher or a parent towards a certain learning style, that might not be the best for the kid actually to learn. I mean, it's a bit like eating your broccoli, right? Kids don't want to eat broccoli. They don't like broccoli, but you as a parent have to say, well, it's green, but it's it's healthy. (laughs) So this is a little bit the same with learning. If your kid has a certain learning style, a learning preference, I should say, then that might be because they are shying away from doing the hard stuff. So it is in general nowadays seen better for, for as a teacher to, to vary in styles uh, so that kids that are already strong readers also see different, maybe train their listening ears and the other way around. Uh, So that you don't get these lopsided children that always prefer doing something in a certain way because they're good at it, not because it is like their natural style.
0: Yeah, that is really interesting. I think it's a fine line between pushing a child to sort of do something that's, that's harder, but not too much that they're just sort of like, you know... Screw this. I don't wanna, you know, like I don't I don't wanna do this at all. I'm I'm yeah. gonna sort of shy away and not just sort of catering to like the thing that they do best because then I think that it's it is harder for them to sort of take on the more challenging tasks because they're used to just being good at the thing that they always do.
1: Yeah, that's, that's very true, that, that plateau, that's absolutely real, where kids sometimes feel very comfortable being able to do something, and they don't want to do a new thing, because then they're a beginner again, and even though, they, of course, in many skills, they cannot really do that much, if they, they realize that if they do something different, then they will be a beginner again, and who likes being a beginner? Yeah. I, I don't like learning new programming languages, because I'm a beginner again, I want to be a straightaway
0: expert. Yeah. I was gonna say it's same thing with, with grown-ups. You, you know, get to a place where you're comfortable and, you know, your work or what you're doing or what you're learning, etc. And then, you know, if you are thrown into something new, it you just sort of psych yourself up for it often, right? Because you're like, okay, I could do this. Like I've learned things before. I can, you know, I can learn this new thing too. So yeah, I think it's the same thing for, for adults as well. Yeah,
1: definitely. And we know this also from cognitive psychology. It also has to do with the cognitive load that if you Go to a new domain where you're not an expert. Really, you fall back to being a beginner. And the sad thing, of course, is if you know what an expert thinks, then you get frustrated because you think, oh, I know how I should do this. But the reality is that you don't you actually start to behave almost like a baby again because (laughs) in in the new programming language or the new domain or the new task you really don't know anything so you you need you have to tell yourself like it's okay to fail because you you cannot expect yourself to be able to do it
0: yeah so you have a new book that's recently come out true tell us about that yeah so
1: when I started to teach uh, the kids at community center and failing at that I started to get really interested in like how do people learn so I started to read a lot about how people learn and of course especially about how people learn programming and then many of the things that I learned I thought oh well this is useful for kids but this is also useful for professionals like the role that your long-term memory plays for example in doing tasks like the better you know something the easier it is to remember something it's way easier for us to remember words in English than it is to remember words in French or even in Greek or other languages that have an entirely different alphabet because if you already know the letters you can very quickly read something just because your long-term memory helps your memory your your short-term memory so i started to realize that maybe this is also useful for professionals because Sadly, many computer science departments up to a long, not so long time ago, including my own department where I teach, we don't have courses about just a little bit of cognitive psychology in many computer science departments. Whereas just if you, if you know a little bit about your brain, then we as programmers, we do use our brains. That's, that's what we do the entire time. So just a little bit of knowledge of, of cognitive science about how your memory works, how you learn things, and then specifically aimed for programmers. Yeah, I realized there wasn't a book like that, that I got all my knowledge from general books about learning and then I had to transfer that information to be useful for the context of programming. I thought maybe, oh, it's nice if I write that book because then other people don't have to do
0: the work of reading everything. They can just read what is relevant for programming. What were some of the sort of most interesting things that you found along the way?
1: Yeah, so definitely what I found interesting is this this idea about cognitive load that sometimes you can be really engaged and then the next day you're like, oh, what did I do again? And you've just forgotten. That's, if you understand why that happens, then you can do something to prevent as well. And also many of the things, I also am getting this feedback from people that are already starting to read the book, many of the things we already know, but we don't have the vocabulary for it. For example, the concept of transfer. Transfer is if you know something in one domain, then you can also do something in another domain better. For example, if you know checkers, it might be a little bit easier for you to learn chess because some of the concepts are similar. The idea of capturing a piece and white and black pieces, etc. So this is something we have in programming all the time. If I already know Python, it's a little bit easier for me to learn JavaScript than if I don't know any programming language. But you also have, sadly, the concept of negative transfer, where you think that something works in a certain way, but it doesn't. And that is also something that you run into. Like I came into Python from C Sharp and then I saw classes in Python. I was like, oh, classes. I know what this is. I've got to make a new class and i'm going to define what are the fields on this class and then in python there's no putting a field on a class you just define that in the in the constructor but i'm like why how how can i put it in the constructor if i haven't defined the field so the knowledge i already had was not helping me but hampering me. and i think just having this vocabulary of understanding Sometimes your second programming language will be a bit easier, but also it can be harder knowing these concepts and knowing the work that has already been done. How do you maximize transfer? Lots of research has been done about how to get the most optimal transfer. This is something that we want to know as programmers, because I want to know if I want to learn Python and I already know JavaScript, how do I do that in the most effective way?
0: Yeah. You've mentioned a few times the idea of like cognitive load and getting that in the right space not too little not too much so that so that you can remember do you have like top tips for for doing that
1: oh yeah definitely so this is these are a few top tips that are specifically related to programming so one thing that that is actually very useful is the idea of refactoring so traditionally we see refactoring as improving code and that assumes that there is a gold standard of how code should be looking like that is true for everyone. One of the ideas that I pitch in my book is refactoring for like personal comprehension. So if I am new to Python, then maybe for me, it's better to temporarily rewrite all list comprehensions to loops. Because list comprehensions, I'm not really familiar with it. I can read it if I'm a Python beginner, but it takes me time because the if is at the end. It's kind of weird. So you could imagine if you're, if you're a Python beginner, but an expert programmer, for you, it's easier to just rewrite this temporarily. Or another thing is to inline code. And we don't like to have long methods because long methods are not good for re- reusability. Yes, but for comprehension, it takes your brain lots of energy. I have a method and then this calls another method. Then I have to think, okay, I have to call the method. Of course, my IDE helps me, but still I have to navigate to a different place. Then my visual memory is like, oh, something new. I have to realign myself. Okay, what is here? What parameters are there? Oh, this method calls another method. Oh, I have to navigate to that method. Your brain gets fuller and fuller, and it's harder and harder to really understand what's going on. So also in this situation, and luckily many IDEs support this, I can say temporarily for the act of comprehending the code, just inline everything. So I have a long method. I can read it. I can really figure out what's there because everything is already there. So I don't need to spend cognitive load on searching for all the information. And then after a while, then I roll everything back. So this, if we, if we let go the idea that there is one golden standard of how code should look like, and we recognize that different prior knowledge very much influences what we see and the state of the code for me can be good whereas for you you'd be like why are all those for loops here i want my list comprehension back and luckily because of tool support we can have different views of the code because an ide you can just refactor stuff temporarily and then just not commit or have the ide roll it back so that's definitely one of the tips that i see that if you find code hard to read you can have a bit of control over your own cognitive load by restructuring the code. And there's some stuff you can't have control over, right? Because some it is in Python. So you're not going to rewrite everything in JavaScript because it's easier for you. There are limits to this strategy, but that is definitely one of the strategies I can describe that also have helped me not just understand code, but also to like love, love myself a bit more, be a bit softer to myself and nicer. Because sometimes like everyone likes the code in this way and I like the code in a different way. Is it because... I'm not smart enough and then maybe it's just because I don't have enough prior knowledge I'm not so experienced it's fine if I need the code in a different form temporarily if that's the best for me at this point in time
0: that's interesting yeah I always hear sure about refactoring for improving code but how to how to use that to your advantage in terms of understanding how your how your brain works and how to learn learn more effectively it's really cool so You've mentioned that basically a lot of the research that you found when sort of looking into, you know, teaching kids to code and, and coding programming education for children, a lot of it is applicable to, you know, to adults and professionals, et cetera. Is there anything that really sort of felt like, okay, this is for professionals and this is like a specific thing that works for kids? Because kids have, I feel like oftentimes kids have, you know they have a different sense of the world because of their experiences and because of their ages is there anything that you have found where it's like okay this is gold or this is really great for kids but doesn't so much work for professionals or grown-ups
1: yeah so there, there are a bunch of things there actually <laughs> so so one is motivation so I've also taught not adults in university they're technically adults but if I say adults I mean like professionals in a different field that want to come into programming and at that age self-consciousness is really something that people And especially women, I've told lots of women at a certain age, they think, I cannot do this. I am not a technical person because, you know, people keep telling us women that, you know, (laughs) programming is not for you. So they are convinced they can't do it. Of course, even if it's not true, then the first error message they get, they're like, you see, this is too hard. I cannot do this. I knew I couldn't do it. So they're like, sadly, a little bit more prone to give up. And I said, that's not about them. that is also about society telling them things. So that is clearly a difference where kids and especially boys, are very resilient to failure. They can get error messages <laughs> like in general, of course. they can get error messages and they, they still want to push on because they still believe that they are they can learn it. They can do it and sometimes adults are yeah, sadly convinced that they cannot do it even though they have the the capacity to do it and also of course another difference is for kids it really matters that they can build stuff that they care about of course that is true for some adults as well but some people want to learn programming because it's a good career and then it doesn't matter what they build they don't care if it's a website or a back end it's just you I want to do this, it it pays the bills, which is like totally fine. We all need jobs and to pay the bills. But for kids, they really care about building something that they, they care about. So they want to make interactive fiction or an artwork or they want to make a game, something that they really care about. And it's hard for kids to keep the enthusiasm for programming itself if they're not seeing where they're going so that's also I think one of the mistakes I made in teaching that I just gave them a general direction but then if you don't know what programming is you also cannot really like know what you want so if you say to kids like oh but you can build whatever you want go ahead build whatever you want and kids are like That's super (laughs) concrete. Like, I don't know what I want because I don't know what the thing can do for me. And that's something that adults can can have more like, delayed gratification like they're there to learn programming so whatever you throw at them they're like okay, I'm gonna try whereas kids you need to lure them in a little bit with oh so now I say things like you know at the end of this course you have an interactive fiction and you can make it about zombies or, or unicorns or what, what is it what is a book you really like and i are like oh I like that book and like, okay so we can make a story along the lines of that book and that's really something you, you need to you need to rope them in a bit with concrete plans of where you're going.
0: So if you wanted folks to take one thing away from your, your book or sort of your work in general, what would you say that one thing is? If you teach
1: kids programming, you really need to take them by the hand and show them how to do stuff. Like... Some people, they don't say it in these words, but some people think that compilers are great teachers, right? So yeah, you can just put a program in and if you make a mistake, then the compiler will tell you you're wrong. So then you will learn. And then you go into Python, for example, which I love as a language, but then you forget a space or you forget a, um, a closing bracket and the thing says EOL, syntax error, unexpected EOL, unexpected EOF syntax error. And then you know what to do. Unexpected EOL, oh, end of line. Oh, I forgot to close a bracket somewhere. But then for, for some kids, they're like, what to do? So that is really something we need to, as a community, need we to step away from. Error messages are clear if you've seen them many times before. But for kids, they're not helpful. You need to just tell them what to do. In many times, I, when I was teaching, kids all the error messages, and, and I could have just told them what to do and fixed their problem. I was like, so what, what do you think the problem is? Like, do you see the error message? What, what do you think is going on here? And kids are like, especially, I am Dutch. So I teach Dutch kids. They don't even read English. So clearly they don't understand what syntax error is. <laughs>
0: Well, this is the person of our show where we move on to genius and fail moments. So something that's happened in the last few weeks related to kids that is either a genius, so something that went really, really well, or a failure. So, you know, something that maybe wasn't so great. I can go first. I have a genius. So we are... Still living in the in the pandemic, not going anywhere, not really doing anything. We recently finished folks from the podcast recently finished a renovation on our house. And so we have our, our rental for about another week or week and a half, when we're planning our move back to our finished house, we planned our move back a little earlier so that we could myself and then my husband so that we could each take a couple of days and evenings where we could just be in the rental house on our own. And you know, there's like a little bit of sort of cleaning up and tidying up to do. But mostly I just like stay up until 1am and eat ice cream for dinner if I want and, you know, cereal for lunch or whatever, whatever it is that I feel like doing genius because I 100% needed the break and my husband's couple of days are after mine and he 100% needs the break. So yes, we're very lucky and excited that we can take just a little bit of a little bit of time away from everyone. Felina, do you have
1: one? Yeah, yeah, actually I do. I have one that is both genius and, and a failure because it's a genius kid that pointed me to a failure of mine. So <laughs> I think that like counts double. Uh, so you mentioned in the beginning that I created a programming language for kids called Hedi. And I was testing that this week with uh, seventh graders online. So I was teaching them and I had to try my programming language, which was, was really cool. And then at one point we get to arithmetic, right? So you can do simple calculations so you can make your own calculations calculator or your own mathematical quiz so I hadn't really thought that much about how it should look like but then arithmetic in programming language if you divide you use the slash right but then kids these are 12 year olds so usually if you divide in math class at least where I'm from you use a colon to divide and not a slash so the kid is like oh but can you also do division because in the example I, I showed you tables of multiplication so I'm like, yeah, you can do division, but in programming it works a bit differently because you have to use a slash instead of a colon. And the kid is like, but why? But you made this programming language. Why did you like? Why did you make it like that? <laughs> and that was so like cute and interesting at the same time because I was like, Mike, but she is right. Why Why do I do this? And do <laughs> why do I? Well, I didn't really, I just copied all the other languages. But why are programming li- languages like that? Why don't we just divide with the division symbol? If you have a simple calculator, because initially I thought, well, on a calculator, you also have a slash, but you don't actually. On a calculator, usually it is also the colon or the colon with a, with a minus in the middle. So it was so fun that firstly, it was not just this was the first time that we were testing the programming language kids it was really cool to hear the sentence but you made this programming language out of a kid's <laughs> mouth I was just like I was super happy and at the same time I was like oh oops you know she is so right why why did I just use this convention and I think that also just shows that so many things in our community in many communities of course but so many things are just they're the way they are because they always were like that or they were like that for a long time but they don't Programming languages don't have to be terrible, especially for kids. We we could make them a bit better. So I think that was... Like her genius, my failure moment, realizing that, yeah, I could have done that differently.
0: Nice. Thank you so much for coming on our show. If folks want to find more about you on the internet, where, where should they go?
1: Yeah, so the nice thing about my first name is that if you spell it correctly, you will find only me because my parents had a really weird way of writing my name. So it is F-E-L-I-E-N-N-E. But then that is my first name is my handle, Twitter where you can find information on me or you can go to my website which is myfirstname.com and if you go to felina.com slash book that's where all the info and the link to my book is as well so the nice thing is I'm quite easy to find
0: excellent well thank you so much for coming on the show and thanks so much everyone for listening to the Parent Driven Development Podcast you can find us on Twitter at at parentdrivendev and if you like what you hear please rate us on iTunes thanks